it really is a, a simple question, but it's not an easy question. And that's this question. Who is Jesus? That there's a reason that that question dominated all the discussion at the, the early councils of the church. And to borrow the words of of A.W. Tozer, the reason that question dominated the councils is, is this. It's because what comes into your mind when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark. Praise God. It doesn't leave us in the dark. When it comes to answering that question, why not? Because because Jesus didn't show up on the religious landscape, make a big splash, and then look us in the eyes and say, good luck figuring out what all that meant. We're not trapped in the morass of, of your opinion versus my opinion, where nobody knows the real answer to the question, who is Jesus? No, we know who Jesus is because he tells us who he is. In the pages of his word. And just like certain things, if I was sitting with you talking today, are true about you and false about you. Why? Because you're a real person. So too, there are certain things that are true about Jesus and false about Jesus. And that, that's what the fourth ecumenical council in 451 AD at Chalcedon, if you're familiar with church history, was, was all about clarifying what, what does the Bible say is true and false about the person of Christ. And after several weeks of debate in the fall of that year, the 520 bishops in attendance, they issued this statement that I'm going to read for you that has served as guardrails for Christian orthodoxy ever since then. Who is Jesus? Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, And at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages. But yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, Recognized in in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Not as parted or or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son. And only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him. And our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us. 
and the creeds of the fathers has handed down to us. It's the Chalcedonian definition. What, why are, church, the definitions and distinctions in that statement so important? Maybe half of those words, you're like, what in the world are they talking about? Well, it matters because what comes into your mind when you think about who is Jesus is the single most important thing about you. Okay, that's the whole point of 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Nothing is more important in your life than your genuine answer to the simple question, who is Jesus? And as John reminds his readers and and reminds us of the biblical answer to that question, he urges, he exhorts, he commands us to not just recall what other people say about Jesus or acknowledge what we know to be true about Jesus, but rather to personally and persistently abide in Jesus. Why do we need to abide in Jesus? Well, because the end of all things is fast approaching. Look at verse 18. The end of all things is approaching. Verse 18, children, it is what? The last hour. You know, since the resurrection of Christ, we're living in what the Bible calls the last days. Why does it call it the last days? Well, that's that's because the next decisive event in the course of world history is the return of Christ. There are no more ultimately decisive events, chapters, that will take place prior to that. That's the next one. The day of judgment is at hand. And that means, in the words of J.H. Newman, that the course of world history, listen to this, runs not toward the end, but along it. And on the brink of it. And is at all times near it. Christ, then, is ever at our doors. As Jesus himself said, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. The end is, is near. The end is nearer right now than when you woke up this morning. <laughs> and in light of the fast approaching day of reckoning, where you are going to give an account to God for every word that has come out of your mouth, every thought you have ever had, every action you have ever taken. John gives us a single command in verse 27. Look at the end of the verse. Abide in him. Abide in Christ. Cling to Christ. Don't don't ignore him. Don't reject him. Don't abandon him. Abide in him because the future course of your life depends on it. If you're a Christian, I'm willing to bet that you've heard that command before. Okay, abide in Christ. I'm also willing to bet that there's a decent chance you're like me and that there are a lot of things you hear in church that you have no clue what they mean. What I'm so grateful for about this word at the end of 1 John chapter 2 is that John doesn't just say, the end is near, in light of the end, abide in Christ. He actually shows us what that looks like. 
Okay, what does it mean to abide in Christ? How do we abide in Christ? And I, and I think he gives us at least three means here by which we do that. How do we abide in Christ? I'm going to give you three of them. All right, number one, the end is near. We have to abide in Christ. How do we do that? Number one, we remain in the body of Christ. I doubt you were thinking that. Look at verse 18. Because this isn't initially what I was thinking either. Verse 18, John points out a, a single individual and a group of people. Okay, the individual is the Antichrist who is, who is coming. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul promises that Jesus will not return, listen, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He's speaking of the Antichrist. And and the Apostle John here echoes Paul in, in telling us, telling you and me, to expect an evil ruler at the end of world history who will join Satan in unprecedented or, or par excellence rebellion against the authority of Christ. He'll attempt to stamp out the worship of God by destroying the people of God. That's coming. And as Christians, we take comfort in knowing that the Antichrist is also the one, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So he's coming, but he's going to lose. We know that. And until that day, John tells us to anticipate the presence, that was the individual, of a related group of people who function, as it were, as forerunners prototypes of the Antichrist to come. Look at verse 18. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, singular, so now many Antichrist, plural, have come. In verse 19, he tells the recipients of this letter exactly who these folks are. Look at verse 19. Who are they? Those who what? Went out from us, but were not of us. Okay, in other words... The many antichrists, the the type, types of the antichrists to come are are those who at one point were part of the Christian community. They they were members of the local church. How do we know that? Well, because the only way John could describe them as those who went out from us is if they were what? Among us to begin with. Okay, but, he, but he warns us, he warns the church that, that although these folks were at one time part of us or among us, their departure indicates, it proves that they were never genuinely of us. Okay, that their salvation wasn't genuine. At one point they looked like Christians, but the fact that they abandoned the body of Christ confirms that they're not children of God. Never were. They're, they're children of the evil one. They're, they're living in, in willful opposition to the authority of God. Fr- friend, listen. 
listen, one of the necessary marks of genuine Christian faith is perseverance in the faith as expressed through faithful participation in the life of a local church. I will say it again. One of the necessary marks of a genuine Christian is perseverance in the faith expressed through active participation in the life of a local church. Okay, John, John isn't saying, I can, I can hear the, are you saying? Um, no, I'm not. John isn't saying that we earn right standing with God by showing up on Sundays. He doesn't say that. He's simply saying you cannot claim to be a Christian if you abandon the community of the saints. Why not? Because, friend, the health of your relationship with the church is one of the single best indicators of the health of your relationship with God. You can't separate those two things. Because it's in the community of the church that your relationship with God is nourished and strengthened. You you need the preaching of God's word. Okay, you, you need the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. You need brothers and sisters who are going to look you in the eyes when you don't want them to look you in the eyes and speak the truth and love to you. You need the accountability of church discipline. It's why church membership is so important and why being, being excommunicated or, or removed from the fellowship of the church is a really big deal. You, you can't claim Think of it this way. You can't claim to have fellowship with the head of the body, with Christ, if you refuse to participate in fellowship with the rest of the body, the church. There are no headless bodies of Christ or bodiless heads of Christ. They go together. We don't like to admit that. We like to tell ourselves, well, I'm, I'm good with Jesus. I hear this, friends. I hear this. This is all over the place. I'm good with Jesus. I know God loves me. I know I'm a Christian. I am just so done with the local church. I warn you, friend, if you persist in neglecting to meet together and allowing other desires, other priorities to erode your participation, your commitment to the local church, you have no grounds for assurance of salvation. You can keep telling yourself, it's well with my soul. But God says, it's not. It's not because the members and pastors of your church are the divinely appointed representatives of God's authority in your life. If you refuse to remain accountable to them by withdrawing from Christian community, then you are refusing to remain accountable to him, to God. I'm not saying this because the church is a perfect place been a pastor long enough to know that's nonsense. Starting with the fact that I'm a member here. <laughs> you know, 
relationships in, in a fallen world are always messy. But guess what? Jesus Christ is redeeming the mess. He's redeeming the mess in your life. He's redeeming the mess in, in our life. He's making us more and more into his image. And if you run from that, if, you, if you're living, if you try to live in isolation from the members of the church, then you're trying to live in isolation from the Lord of the church. Because it's his body. Kingsway, this is his body with, with all our issues, all our troubles, all our weaknesses, okay? We remain the bride of Christ. And you can't diss the bride, reject the bride, and stay friends with the groom. Don't try. Don't try. Heed the words of Hebrews 3, verses 13 and 14, which we've, we've captured in, in two critical promises in our church covenant. Promise one, not forsaking meeting together, we will uphold the public worship of God and the proclamation of his word, the nourishment of the Lord's Supper, and the exercise of spiritual gifts. Promise two, if God leads us from this place, this is so important, we will unite with another church as soon as possible where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant. What does that mean for you, church member? It means that if you see a fellow member wandering, drifting, attending, or showing up sporadically or, or not at all to our gatherings on Sundays or during the week, that you need to go after that person. You need to hold them accountable. You need to look them in the eyes and say, you are neglecting the fellowship of the saints of the living God. And you do that to the peril of your own soul. You cannot claim to have fellowship with the head and reject fellowship with the body. That's what love looks like. You need to be willing to love people enough to, to do that. And notice here, notice here that, that there's an implicit warning to those of us who are active church members. Well, what's the warning? Well, well, John says you can't call yourself a Christian if you abandon the fellowship of the local church, but nor can you assume you're a Christian simply because you were considered a member in good standing of the local church. Why not? Because it is ridiculously easy for you to deceive the church. To deceive me as a pastor and all the people around you. And, by the way, to deceive yourself. So, so we rightly draw encouragement that our, that our faith is genuine if the people around us, Christians who know us well, are convinced of as much based on observing the fruit of our life. But we have to remember, friend, that it's not ultimately the assessment of the church that matters. It's the assessment of God. 2 Timothy 2.19, But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. You might be able to fool the church or your parents or me as a pastor. You can't fool God. He knows. But abiding in Christ, the bidding starts, so to speak, with remaining in the local church. Remain in the church. Heed the warning. Abide in Christ by remaining in the body of Christ. Church, church membership isn't a badge for super Christians. I'm not looking for super Christians at the membership class today. I'm looking for authentic Christians. 
It's the, it's the hallmark of an authentic Christian. They are a member of the body of Christ. It's biblical. It's necessary. You can't claim to abide in Christ if you're not remaining in the body. That's point one. Point number two, how do we abide in Christ? Second answer, we confess the divine identity of Jesus. Confess the divine identity of Jesus. And in verse 20, in verse 20, John pivots. This whole book is kind of him saying one thing, going to something else, going back to what he just said. It's circles all over the place. But, but he pivots here from, from describing the divine purpose behind those who departed, church members who departed, to calling out the heresy that these folks were teaching. So what were they teaching? Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Translation, the incarnation is a myth. That's what they were teaching. There's no way... This is what they were teaching. There's no way that the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, took to himself a human nature in Mary's womb and was born as a man. No way. The Jesus of history cannot be the Christ of faith. So so call him a religious teacher, call him a saint, call him a a good example, just don't call him the divine son of God because he's not the Christ. He's not the son of God. He's just another figure in the panoply of world religions. Does that sound familiar? If you choose to believe that, and many today do, and young people, many of those who are teaching you in university, strongly believe that then you're choosing to believe a lie why because the collective witness of the old testament the unified teaching of the new testament the titles ascribed to jesus the works done by Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the worship given to Jesus, the attributes predicated of Jesus, the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, the knowledge revealed by Jesus, the salvation won by Jesus, and the vindication granted Jesus uniformly and overwhelmingly testify to the divine identity of Jesus. You can't deny that without lying. If if anything is blindingly clear in Scripture, there are things in here that are hard to understand, but if anything in here is blindingly clear, it's that the historical person of Jesus is no one less than the divine Son of God. That is so clear. In fact, it's the whole point, why, why whole reason John wrote the fourth gospel. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, ran out of room. But these are written that you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. I, I love how I. Howard Marshall says, the height of heresy is to deny that Jesus is the Messiah. It is. 
the Son of God and Savior, to reduce Jesus to the status of a mere man or to allow no more than a temporary indwelling of some sort of divine power in him is to strike at the root of Christianity. Why? Why could he say that? Well, it's because the entire message of Christianity hinges on knowing, church, that the historical person of Jesus was the divine son of God. The whole, our entire faith hinges on that. Why? I mean, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, if he wasn't divine, what would I lose? Two things, big things. First, you can't know the Father apart from the Son. You can't know the Father apart from the Son, okay? The glory of God in creation itself is enough to what? To prove to us that God exists, that he is powerful, and that we are accountable to him. But but it's only through the incarnation, through through God coming to earth as a man, that we we can know our creator, know the Father as what? As a God who saves. As a God who saves, who who loves us so much that he he entered our broken world and carried our sorrows and and died for sinners who rebel against him. If, If Jesus Christ is not the divine son of God, then we ultimately don't know if the words of Exodus 34, 6 are true. The Lord, the Lord, who, who are you, Lord? Why am I God merciful and gracious? I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That makes no sense if he's not the Son of God. You have no way of believing or knowing that that's true. You know, as, as John himself says at the beginning of the fourth gospel, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God. So how do we know what he's like? Glad you ask. Who is at the Father's side, the only God, the divine Son? He's made him known. Okay, or as Jesus himself declares, so clear in Luke 10.22, No one knows who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You you can't know the Father if you don't have the Son. No way we could know who God is, okay? That's the first thing you'd lose. Second, not only can you not know who the God is, you you can't enjoy access to God. You, You can't have knowledge of the Father. You can't have relationship with the Father. Apart from the Son, being divine. Why? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, why not? Why can't a Buddhist find a way to the Father? Or a Muslim find a way to the Father? Or a New Age spiritualist find their way to the Father? It's simply because contrary to the religious pluralism in our day, there are not multiple paths to God. There is one path to God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith, that faith in Christ, is a faith that believes the substitutionary sacrifice of the historical person of Jesus was sufficient to deliver you from the guilt and power and presence of sin. That's what that faith believes. 
And it believes those things about Jesus precisely because of the infinite worth of his person. You you cannot separate the sufficiency of the work of Christ from the worth of the person of Christ. I, I love how Mark Jones observes. He puts these things together. He says, the worth of Christ's person gave infinite value to his work. What does he mean by that? Well, he's simply recognizing that Jesus had to be what? Fully man so he could rightly serve as our representative. And Jesus also had to be what? Fully God so that the merit of his saving work would be sufficient for the sins of all who trust in the Savior. If he's not fully God, then he doesn't have the merit to promise that or give that gift. Look at verse 24. Verse 25. This is impossible unless he's divine. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. A man cannot give you eternal life. God can give you eternal life. And in Christ, God gives us eternal life. So to to deny the divinity, divine identity of Jesus, is to deny, to lose, both our knowledge of the Father and our relationship with the Father because it's the Son who reveals the Father and reconciles us to the Father. Now, let me make a couple points of application here because that was a lot. <laughs> okay? First, I want to I directly speak here to those of you who are not Christians or are exploring Christianity. Alright? Something I want you to remember. There are a lot of things that no doubt you find offensive or confusing or elements of our faith that you don't understand. So so maybe it's what Christians believe about homosexuality or or believe about abortion or or the way they seem to make hypocritical choices or or the way they claim this this belief in this kind of all-loving, all-powerful God who somehow allows evil to continue. I don't know what your issue, your obstacle to faith in Christ is. But I do know this. There is one issue and one issue alone that matters more than all the others. And that's this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the belief. He's the divine son of God that separates Christianity from every other world religion. That's it. So so don't get sidetracked if you're wrestling with the faith by by matters of, of secondary importance, okay? Wrestle honestly and persistently with the most important question, namely, who do you say Jesus is? Focus on him. And I promise you that if you do that, a lot of secondary issues will start to make sense. Okay? Second application. For those of you who are Christians, okay, the fact that abiding in Christ means confessing the divine identity of Jesus. How does that apply to us? Well, if you're a Christian, if, if you believe that he's the Son of God, remember verse 23. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. What's the application? Well, if you're talking with someone and you're confused or uncertain about whether they're genuinely saved or, or they knock on your door 
And they say, could I explain to you our understanding of Christianity? And you're confused? I'm on the plane. You say you're Christian? I I don't know. Well, good for you. God bless you. Back to my book. No. Ask this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe he's the divine son of God or not? Why is that so important? Well, because a genuine Christian obeys God's commands. That's the moral test, 1 John. A genuine Christian loves the church. That's the relational test in 1 John. And what's the third test for assurance of salvation? It's a doctrinal test. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? It's by far the most important. And by the way, just to give an illustration of this, when I was having lunch with some Folks who were new to the church or exploring church membership last week, Meredith Levanovich was there. She gave me permission to share this. And, and Meredith has struggled in the past for long periods of time with assurance of salvation. And, and she said something last Sunday that I thought was so wise, that illustrated what it means to abide in Christ by confessing the divine identity of Jesus. She, she said this, I ask myself, if I wasn't a Christian, what would God have me do today? I concluded that he would tell me to seek Jesus, to trust Christ. And then I ask myself, what if I am a Christian? What would God have me do today? And I concluded that he would tell me to seek Jesus, to trust Christ. In case you weren't listening, I just repeated myself. Because <laughs> Meredith repeated herself. What, what's, what's the point? Well, she realized that assurance of salvation is built first and foremost not on investigating the nature or strength of our faith, but on fixing our eyes on the sufficient object of our faith. On Jesus. She chose to believe today, tomorrow, and the rest of her life that, that she needed a Savior. And Jesus, the Son of God, is that Savior. Praise God for his work in Meredith. And I should also add that if you're a Christian and you're talking with someone who doesn't know Christ, work hard to keep the conversation from drifting into tangential issues, side issues. Okay, Don't don't hesitate to say when you're talking about the Lord with someone, they ask a question that has really nothing to do with Jesus, just say, you know what, that's a great question. I'd be glad to talk later with you about that. Can we get back to who Jesus is? Because <laughs> that's what I really want to talk about with you. You know that's the most loving thing you could say? Because the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of who is Jesus. Remember that when you're sharing the gospel. We abide in Christ by remaining in the body of Christ. We abide in Christ by confessing the divine identity of Jesus. Lastly, Third means we abide in Christ. Point three, we abide in Christ by holding fast to the truth of the gospel. We hold fast to the truth of the gospel, okay? Look back at verse 20 and 21 here. There's something John points out here that separates the Christians from the Antichrist, from the false teachers who deny the truth of Jesus. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. 
Because no lies of the truth. Now, here's the obvious question. Why in the world would John write to these people if they know the truth? It's like, why take Bio 101 if you just took Bio 101 last semester and got an A? Like, why? Okay? Why is he writing to them words of Scripture, words of truth, if by his own admission, they already know the truth? Well, I think the answer is that knowing the truth, quite frankly is woefully insufficient. You have to abide in it. You have to cling to it. We, we have, to, have to refuse to let go of what is true and resist compromise no matter how strongly the culture pushes us to give, give in. John's, John's pastoral concern was not that the church he wrote to didn't know the truth. His concern was that they would let go of, they would not hold fast to what they knew to be true. And I would argue that we have exactly the same challenge. So what does he say? Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Hear that, Kingsway. Let, let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. What, what is he talking about? What have they heard from the beginning? Well, they've heard the word of the gospel, right? The good news of salvation through faith in Christ. And by choosing to believe it, they came, verse 24, to abide in the Son and in the Father. To enjoy the gift of relationship with God the Son and God the Father. What does that mean for us today? Well, it means that the single greatest challenge in the Christian life is not to learn things that are new, but to hold fast to things that are very old. (laughs) That's the single greatest challenge. But I can hear the voices. I, I know the gospel, Matthew. I've heard it over and over and over again. It's all you people sing about. (laughs) Well, you know what? If that's the case, praise God. If you've heard the gospel over and over and over again because you've grown up in this church and part of you is sitting there thinking, is the preacher going to say anything new today? Praise God. Because you've been well served. You've been well served. But when I say we have to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, I mean learning how to live accordingly in every area of life. I do not mean sitting around on a stool and mindlessly repeating to yourself over and over again, God is holy, I'm not, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, Jesus is a savior, God is holy, I'm not, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, Jesus is a savior. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about learning how to, how to work in light of the gospel or rest in light of the gospel. Or love your neighbors in light of the gospel. Or or go to school in light of the gospel. Or love your spouse in light of the gospel. Or or raise your kids in light of the gospel. When John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, that's what he's talking about. Not mindless repetition. And by the way, to connect this to point one, that's one of the reasons why remaining in the community of the church is so important. Because you will not learn how to live in light of the gospel, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, abide in it without help. As Ed Welch says, you are needy and you are needed. In verse 26, John tells us that, that false teachers were trying to deceive this church. They were, they were luring God's people away from the centrality of the gospel. 
And John doesn't tell us exactly all that they were teaching beyond denying that Jesus is the Christ. But the response he gives them, the challenge he sets before them and says, in light of these people who are trying to deceive you, guys, do this. We need to hear that and do the same. We, we have our own temptations, do we not? Our own temptations to accept claims that are out of step with the truth of the gospel or the implications of the gospel. Why do I say that? Because the gospel has something to say about these questions. Is gender binary or malleable? Are the roles of men and women the same or are they different? If I experience a sexual desire, am I entitled to pursue it or am I not? gospel has something to say to those questions, friends. And as the pace of cultural change speeds up, I think it's really easy for the church to feel beleaguered and, and grow weary by trying to sort out truth from error and, and right from wrong. And at some points, it is so tempting to just, just weigh anchor and roll with the tide. But we can't. Because our king commanded us to abide in Christ. What does that mean? It means holding fast to the word of the gospel despite all the cultural pressure to do everything contrary to that. And if we're going to hold up under that pressure, we have to learn to do two very simple things. Okay? First, we have to remain in the word. Remain in the word. Okay, look at verse 24. It's just so simple and so important. What is, how does John begin verse 24? Let what you saw abide in you. Let what you experienced abide in you. Let what you woke up and felt was true after breakfast abide in you. No, what does he say? Let what you heard abide in you. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means we hold fast to the truth of the gospel by keeping our minds fixed on the words of God. The word of God. Friend, faith in Christ is not experience-centered. It's word-centered. Which means you need to spend enough time, if you claim to be a Christian, reading and studying and meditating on the word so that it becomes part of who you are. So, so that when someone says something to you or you see something on TV and you think, well, gosh, is that true or is that not? My heart would really like for that to be true. You can immediately do th- two things, two questions, okay? Question one, is there anything in the Bible that supports this claim? If so, proceed to question two. <laughs> is there anything in the Bible that denies this claim? If not then you can receive it. And it's true. But we have to hold fast to the truth of the gospel by, by remaining in the word, okay? That's the first thing we got to do. Here's the second thing. Under cultural pressure to not hold fast to the gospel, we have to remain in the word. Second, we have to rely on the spirit. Rely on the spirit. All right, look at verse 27. I am tempted to give a whole sermon on this verse. It's waiting there, okay? But for now, suffice it to say in verse 27 that that John encourages his readers and he encourages us, Kingsway, that we are not alone in the battle. 
We're not alone in the battle, okay? If you're a Christian, Jesus has given you a gift in the fight to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, and it's called the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is what John describes, or he means, when he talks about this anointing. Okay, don't be thrown off by that word. He's talking about the spirit that you're given when you are saved. He's he's reminding us that that one of the Holy Spirit's primary jobs is to actually do, check this out, what Jesus said he would do in John 14, 25. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus said, while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Jesus said that. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Why why do we need to remain in the word and rely on the spirit? Because they work together. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who grants us a spiritual gift of illumination so that when we meditate on this word and study it, not only does it make sense, but it feeds our souls. (laughs) And as we read it, we, we find faith growing. And conviction forming and and comfort coming and and correction arising and and all the other things it's sufficient for. It's the spirit that takes God's word and applies it to your heart and mind so you can understand it and and believe it and live in it. Now just to shoot down an unfortunate misconception here, verse 27. When John says you have no need that anyone should teach you, He's not telling me to quit my job. He's not contradicting everything the entire rest of the Bible says about needing to sit under the preaching of God's word. He's simply reminding us that we don't need anyone to teach us some sort of new truth beyond what the Holy Spirit is already illuminating in this word. That's what he means. You need preaching. You need to wake up in the morning and read this. Because unless you remain in the word and rely on the spirit, you'll never abide in Christ by holding fast to the gospel. It's, it's why I pray every morning, wiping crusties out of my eyes. Lord, today, open my eyes. Spirit of God, open my sleepy eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. The whole promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is that I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts. That's what the Spirit does, church. If we're going to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, we have to remain in the Word. We have to rely on the Spirit. All right? As world history nears the end, nothing is more important than abiding in Christ. Nothing. Because only those who abide in him and keep on abiding in him will experience the joy of eternal life after death. So, stop clinging to the false hopes of this world. Cling to Christ. Come to Christ. Abide in him by, by faith as the Son of God, your only hope for salvation. And then embrace the church. Become a church member. Not because it's optional, because it's necessary. And hold fast to the truth of the gospel. No matter how much pressure you're getting from every quarter to do otherwise. Do that by remaining in the word and and relying 
on the Spirit. Why? For if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, what does John promise, church? Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, which is exactly what God created you to do. The end is near. It's coming. Abide in Christ. Let's pray. We need your help to do that, Lord. You've spoken much to us today. I pray right now that your spirit would do what you are so good at doing. And you would show us where we need to grow this week in abiding in you. I pray, Father, you would use these words from 1 John 2 to take that command out of the realm of the weird Christianese lingo and bring it down to earth and make it practical. Lord, help us to remain faithful in your body. Help us to keep confessing your divine identity. Help us to hold fast to the gospel. We want to be a church that pleases you in light of your return by abiding in Christ. Do that even as we sing. Share the Lord's Supper. Amen.